I'm going to pull it up. We're just going to watch the movie. Now that I've gone off the crazy boat. <laughs> this is Design School. Okay. Well, Daniel, thank you for uh, agreeing to be on our podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, and from our last podcast with Paige Polly, she had recommended you, and she had a question that she wanted. She thought very thoroughly and contemplative about this, that um, she would like for you to talk about who you are. Just talk about yourself, uh, at least for the first couple of minutes, and we may stop you here and there uh, along the way, but she says that, uh, A, she admires you a whole lot, um, but as well as it's good for you to, to learn how to network. <laughs> and so we'll, we'll, we'll be the judge of that. Yeah, I think that's kind of uh, interesting because I I spoke to Paige and it must have been after she recorded the show, but um, she said something about like, uh, you know, you'll be great. And I was like, oh, I don't like talking about myself. And so I'm sure she had already had, like figured that out and told you guys that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which is funny to me. But um, yeah, so uh, in thinking about what to talk about on myself, like there's so many different uh you know, ways to go, but sort of what's on my mind a lot right now um, is that I sort of find myself caught between uh, like two different ways to characterize myself. And one is as a developer and one is as a designer. And I think the tension really comes from the fact that I don't really want to make that distinction. And I feel like it's a distinction that is sort of thrust upon a lot of people by their jobs or by what people expect from them. And so I've just sort of come back home to this idea of like uh, spanning these sort of disciplines. I've always been really interested in interdisciplinary like kinds of science or interdisciplinary kinds of like just any field where things kind of overlap. Um, and for me, it's all about um, like how design is about not just how things look, but also how they work. And I'm so interested in that that I want to be able to have a, a big hand in, you know, figuring it out. And so that's where... I don't know. I, I just guess I'm thinking of myself more as being both, and I'm sort of trying to like buck that like mm -hmm. uh, desire for people to be like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, I like to make stuff. That's what I want to do. Um, there's the design stuff, mm -hmm. and then there's sort of everything else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's another area where I like things kind of bleed over. You know, like. Um, one of the big projects I'm working on right now, uh, design-wise, which I'm getting a lot out of, is I made a letterpress printer in my basement. It's like a small little thing, uh, and uh, I'm making save the dates for my wedding, which is coming up in May. And I love it. Like it's just this great design printing project, and it has nothing to do with work. And I don't have any way of linking it back to money or you know anything. <laughs> and um, I don't know. I think it's just great to have like these long-term projects where you're sort of like so involved in just trying to figure out how to make something possible. Right. Like I didn't know how to do this. I wanted to learn it. Um, I had like a goal now, like here's the thing I need to build. And so I'm like throwing that all together and, um, and I love it. And I feel like that's the same kind of passion I have for like the actual work that I do when I get paid. And yet it's, it's always been like a struggle to like keep a job where it's like enough of the percentage of the time I'm doing something that I love that I can just kind of keep that sort of thrill of like I'm figuring out how to do things mm -hmm. and not 
get sort of bogged down in the like I'm helping someone else kind of fulfill their dream or their vision like that's what I do for work because I think that's what most people do really is right like there's you're helping them with like make their dream come true um and so I think that's kind of what ties it all together for me it's like learning I'm, I'm learning something and I'm like excited about learning it and it's like fun to experiment and I'm getting to like learn a new thing while I build something then it's then it's great and uh that's like the only way for me to get excited about something in my personal life too right <laughs> like like this project is like oh boy like the wedding planning is going to be fun it's going to be crazy and then I was like oh I can build a letterpress printer like and then I got like super excited about it right because there was like this thing I could learn and um so I sort of find that as like a that says something about me that even even for things where um, I'm just trying to motivate myself for responsibilities in my life like I have to find something that um, I can learn or that is like going to be a cool learning experience for me mm-hmm. to like help me motivate my myself to do it yeah. kind of being a lifelong learner yeah I mean and really for me I think a lot of it is being self-taught um, What's been interesting over the last few weeks is uh, it's felt a little bit like going back to school, even though I'm mostly staying at home and just like researching things on the internet. I've um, kind of gotten this passion for like figuring out how people design programming languages, and I've been learning a lot about that. It's so cool now because there's um, a lot of conferences uh, that are on topics that are relevant to this now record their speakers and have the slides online, and there's a lot of information you can get online in a format that's not just like reading someone's blog, like there's great academic papers, but there's also these talks and there's, you know, podcasts, there's all kinds of stuff. And now a lot of the time I find talks and videos and it's just way more interesting. Um, and that's what makes it feel more like school, I think, is this, it's like, here I am researching something and I have these people and I get to see them and they're, it feels like they're talking to me even though it's pre-recorded. Um, and when I think about that, I realize that like all the things that I really love to do and that I've even like made a career out of doing, I learned like I taught, learned them myself, not in school. And I guess the the web is sort of like it's sort of fills that you know desire to just like satisfy that next you know like I want to know the next piece that helps me build the thing I'm working on. Oh, there it is. Um, because again, like I need to have that like personal motivation. Like, how is this going to be interesting to me? that's hard for me I think so that's where like the lifelong learning stuff comes in because it's uh sort of like needed to like self-motivate myself I think um many of my teachers uh were correct about that um and I guess it depends on the subject matter too like when I first went to college I thought I was going to major in biology and uh I kept with that for the first two years I ended up switching to majoring in philosophy and uh because almost all of that like seemed relevant to me and which is kind of weird because it's <laughs> something a lot of people describe as like completely irrelevant to your life um but i found it to be you know just so important to how i was thinking about everything like here's how i'm going to think about my life for the rest of my life so it was easy to just um embrace that as like oh yeah this this matters to me even if uh this class isn't ever going to like the material in this class never comes up again uh, in an academic setting, fine. Like it's curious, it's curious, it's like interesting to me, and I'm curious about it. So, mm-hmm. it's good. Why do you think less people think about philosophy as relevant today? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I think it's maybe just like in small talk. You know, like if you major in English or philosophy or something, people are like, "Well, what are you going to do with that as a job?" 
and um, it's just not obviously something that will make money um, unless you want to teach. And I think there's a lot of, if you go to, like I went to a liberal arts school, most of the things you major in are, you know, fields that are like that, um, but philosophy is sort of like this quintessential example of like, what are you going to do, teach? Uh, oddly enough, I did train myself up for the things I ended up doing as jobs while I was going to school. I just didn't learn those things in class. I learned them on my own. Like what? Web design was where I started, um, and I was really interested in it. Um, I think just because I had like been interested in computers for a long time, but I loved making, you know, visual things. And this was this really interesting blend of the two, and um, I think I think it satisfied like this desire for constraints or to work within constraints that I've had probably since I was a kid playing with Legos. Um, I love activities where you're given like really clear constraints or really constricting ones even, and then you have to just kind of work with what you have. Um, like another example of that is. Uh, doing like pixel art, you know, like designs where you have to work with um, individual pixels for small icons or something like that. Um, yeah, I just think that that's fascinating, like working in constraints where the technology is limiting you in some way or how people will view it is limiting you in some way and then you have to sort of play with what's left over. Um, there used to be limitations on colors for web pages. That was kind of interesting and fun to try to work through. And so like I would make web pages for clubs on campus, a few that I was involved in needed web pages and put them together. I ended up making one for the philosophy department later on, and um, and then I got this summer internship where I was working for a tech services as like a job on the side uh, in school, which just meant like sitting in computer labs, making sure there's paper in the printer, basically. <laughs> um, um, told me I should interview for this internship where I would stay on campus during the summer, and build stuff <laughs> um, and it I got it and it turned out to be like it was just kind of build stuff because they just let you screw around like and if you were like me which was like ambitious to try to learn new things they would be like oh you look like you're doing something interesting and like just leave you alone and it was the people who were like obviously not working on anything that sort of got told what to do and so I would just be like oh I'm figuring out how to you know do X and they'd be like oh great sounds like you're you're doing something interesting um, <laughs> Which was really cool. I think they just like gave everyone an opportunity to just learn whenever they wanted to. So I learned all about like a lot of web design stuff. I spent a lot more time learning how to do things in Photoshop, and I um, learned about database design and um, some more backend stuff at the time, and um, that was really fun. And I went to school at Whitman College, is in Walla Walla, and there's not much to do there during the summer, which was actually kind of cool because I just got to hang out with people who were also interning over the summer. And it's a beautiful, hot summer there. And I kind of fell in love with the town. And I don't think I would have had that relationship with the place had I not mm -hmm. sort of been forced to be there as not really a student, mm -hmm. which um, made it more palatable to later. I ended up working there um, full time for two years after I graduated. So that was a really good opportunity for me to go back. Um, but yeah, leading up to that, I was just spending a lot of time like making web pages and just trying to figure out how that stuff worked and um, trying to play with those constraints, I guess, to do something. I mean, I remember trying to build things where I was trying to like 
how do I build a system where it's really easy for someone else in this club or whoever I'm building it for to update their content? And I had terrible, terrible ideas about how to do that. But I was really passionate about, like, I want to make this beautiful design and have the flexibility to do whatever I want, but then allow someone else to sort of own the site and make updates to it. Like, I thought that was really important. And I had no idea how to solve it, but I was trying to. And it's interesting looking back on that now because I'm still really passionate about that same idea, which is, like, giving designers and people who build things to, like, have flexibility in what they do and um, to not uh, be sort of, like, stuck with, like, okay, this is rigid, like, fixed design. It's done, and I can't, like, update it. And Content management systems are a whole nightmare, which uh, I think it's mostly horrible software still. Um, this is just a really hard problem but but it's still something i'm interested in are you thinking about after designing your own programming language to then design some sort of content management system i hope not i mean i hope it doesn't end up being content management um i think what i'm more interested in is tools for designers so there's there's all these different ways of making programming or like functionality or building websites uh, easier for people who are not programmers. And I actually kind of think that those techniques don't tend to work out very well. Um, so there's there's people who have tried to do things like visual programming, where instead of programming with code, you're programming with diagrams and little boxes and connecting them up. And this is something where, you know, maybe, maybe this will be more accessible to people who don't program and... Um, I have a feeling that those sorts of projects just end up failing because you have to be able to like think really deeply about what it is you're building and, and sometimes these tools encourage you to not have to worry about um, the technical details and I think there are lots of technical details in programming that we shouldn't have to worry about <laughs> um, but some of them are about your problem that you're trying to solve. So I, that's what I'm kind of experimenting with. I haven't really built anything yet. I'm just doing a lot of research to try to educate myself about how these things are designed. I think that a better approach might be to sort of trick people into programming without realizing they're doing it so that you're getting them to think about all the things they need to think about and to deeply understand the system they're working with. But they're like, oh, this is easy um, because I'm thinking about the problem I'm trying to solve, not thinking about this tool and sort of getting the tool out of the way. So that's what I'm interested in is like maybe maybe ways to get rid of all the junk that doesn't matter about setting things up and things that are just done for the sake of the computer and focus on things that are done for the sake of the designer, which is you're trying to design how something will operate. How do I make this work properly? How, like what will work best for the user? And you should be able to quickly iterate on those ideas. Don't make it easy on the computer. I think that make it easy on the person. That sounds very Tufty-esque. Um... I saw in your Twitter post that you had, uh, I'm assuming you had attended a Edward Tufte conference. That's a lot of the, the stuff that I teach at PLU is to talk about um, not just the functionality of it, but the purpose that goes behind that. Do you feel that perhaps your education, and especially since you weren't educated to be a designer, but rather um, that's what you've worked into with philosophy, do you think that that philosophy and design, designing um, helped you to think about stuff like that? Yeah, um, 
so I got, it was great to have a chance to go see Tufti speak and it kind of came up last minute uh, a bunch of people from my work were going and they sort of included me on a mass email that was saying like all these people are going do you want to go too and I was like well yes <laughs> uh, but it was kind of cool because I hadn't thought of it much ahead of time I just kind of showed up and, and I was uh, really blown away I thought it was wonderful um, I, it was the kind of thing I just like couldn't stop thinking about for days afterwards and of course you get his books when you go and uh haven't read them all but i've made it i think through two of them and yeah it's been really wonderful and actually i think a lot of his a lot of his writing um and some of the other writing i've been like things i've been reading through from the 60s and 70s on programming language design have kind of reminded me of the same thing which is like they'll quote philosophers to talk about what they're doing and, and they have this uh this approach that's like sort of all-encompassing right like they're thinking about how this should work how it should look um, what's the principle behind it? What's the purpose of what you're trying to do? All that stuff in ways that uh, just don't come up when you're, you know, making um, web applications for your, the company you work for, for your client, because usually there's already a concept of what it is you're trying to accomplish. Or you're constrained by, like, we need to make this um, easier for people to use. And the thing that they're already accomplishing is like, well, it seems to be making money, so we're just going to keep pursuing, like, this thing that we're selling. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really interested in that kind of approach, like stepping back a little bit and thinking about like what it is we're trying to accomplish and what is the principle behind it. And so I was having drinks with a friend the other night and he's a user experience designer and he likes his job pretty well, but he's sort of starting to shop around and just kind of see what else is out there. And he had just been to an interview and he realized after having this interview that, um, he does so much of his design for the other people like in his company, like his boss, basically. And he reports pretty high up in the company. And I think one of the founders reviews most of his design work. And during this interview, he was asked about some of the design choices he had made in his portfolio. And he realized that the answer was, well, because my boss told me that he liked that one. You know, like he went that direction because his boss said to. And I was like, oh. I totally get that. Like that's so much of what we do in user experience design um, is we have some feedback loop on what we're designing and that the other end of that loop is usually just someone who has a lot of control or their opinion carries a lot of weight. And it's actually kind of rare to find yourself in a feedback loop where it's connected up to what your customers need or want um, or even even just connected up to the revenue of your company, right? Like a lot of funded startups have money coming in regardless of like what they produce, right? Um, because they're trying to like get themselves up to the point where they can really be making a lot of money and they need to like bootstrap to get there. Um, and so during that earlier stage where like the money is coming in from the investors regardless and you're trying to like get this market fit or whatever it is you're doing, you, you might not have a feedback loop that's actually informing the designers directly about their like impact on the customers right where the customer pays or doesn't and then you learn what designs are good or not based on on that instead it's just sort of like a gut feeling like does this seem like the right design yes uh, like do the people i work with think it's the right design yes or like is it something we can implement in a short enough time yes and those are you know obviously really important practical things but i've been struggling in my career to like find a way to connect myself up to some sort of feedback loop that says more than just like 
a gut feeling on somebody's part, like gut feeling of our CEO, gut feeling of our marketing department, gut feeling of our designers. And I think people have really good gut feelings about these things, but I think it's, you learn so much more when it's like, oh, this design failed. We were wrong about this. And you know you're wrong about it because people stopped using it or they clicked the wrong thing or it stopped selling or whatever it was. Some sort of more real world like success or failure of a design. And so I think that connects up to what you're asking me. Like, uh, what are the principles for what we're doing and, and why do we build it the way we do? Um, like, how will you know whether you're successful is a really interesting question to ask. And I think in a lot of like sort of startup worlds, which is what I've been doing most of my design work in, the answer is just like whoever, whoever has the keys, like, like the people in charge decide uh, what the success and failure scenarios look like um, because they're making you know their gut decisions based on what they understand um, and it takes a while for you to get to the point where you're like okay we're really learning about what works and doesn't work if that makes any sense yeah. Yeah. do you feel that you're successful doing what you do well I think that's part of the trouble right is it's hard to know if the success is because someone told you like you did great work and we shipped your thing you know um, and i think a lot of the time i feel successful when something ships you know that's what makes me feel like yeah like we did it it's because it got through all the other hurdles and people are using it that makes me feel really successful just in and of itself because it's hard sometimes to get things out so i don't know if that's a satisfying answer or not um I think it is if you're looking at it from the perspective of your career, but for instance, right now you are reading, you are making um, save the dates um, for your wedding. You're doing a lot of personal developments. Do you feel that you're successful in doing that? Yeah, um, for the time being, I think I need to put it into some sort of deeper practice eventually, right? Um, I hope that the research that I'm doing is going to lead to building something, building a tool. Um, I mean, I have this whole crazy idea about like, first I'm going to design this basic programming language. The goal is eventually to build tools for web developers and designers. Um, so let's say I have this language and then on top of that I build tools out of that language. Um, and then there's sort of this whole system that's all built on top of the same starting point of this programming language I mean it's a very ambitious I've never done something like this before um, so I mean I think I would be I would feel pretty happy if it just turned into like some really interesting insights or if maybe I um, I was just talking to a friend of mine who's he's coming at this from a very different angle he's really interested in like helping web developers do their jobs better and have better tools and I think that's where we have some ideas in common but he's taking a really different approach so maybe maybe what comes out of this is like interesting conversations with people and they learn something and i learned something and maybe it contributes to someone else's work um like today i was just reading this paper from like 1970 uh programming language design and like how small talk this language came to be built and it's so interesting because it's like it seems ancient like computer science and like technology have been changing so much that you think like oh this was written in the 60s or like this language was written in the late 60s and this paper was probably like, you know, written years after that. And it's like, it's forever ago. And it's all the same problems that we're dealing with today. It's like just the same stuff. It's mm -hmm. so interesting 
how little has changed actually. Um, and so I find it really stimulating. So I guess in some sense that's successful, but um, I don't know. I tend to come up with these like crazy ambitious projects, spend a few months going nuts researching them and then just nothing happens. And you know, like on one hand it feels like horrible cause you're like, uh, I thought I was going to do something with this and it was going to be so amazing. And then I didn't turn it into anything, but usually that's because something else came along, like a job opportunity or another project that like did turn into more of a tangible thing. And, um, that just became more interesting. So I feel like I'm learning and that's something I'll have regardless coming out of this. Yeah. It, it sounds very much like a, a sabbatical project. Yeah. I think that perfectly describes it actually, because so yeah, I think maybe that's exactly what I'm doing. It's just they're shorter, you know, they tend to only be a few months at a time. And mm. uh, it's, I feel like I'm incredibly lucky that I can do that. Like, um, it seems crazy that working in the software industry means that you just like automatically make a really good salary and um, like you can save money while you work. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like the work I do is like inherently worth more than work other people do, but I don't know that many people have the same kind of flexibility to just say like, oh, I'm going to decide to have sabbaticals every couple of years. Like, I mean, it sounds like you're able to do that in an educational setting, which is great, mm -hmm. but um I just feel really lucky that I can even do that. Yeah. Do those ever happen in tandem? So like while you're going, so there's like this constant pattern of, you know, working and then like breaking and learning stuff. Yeah. Like, is there, do you ever do that while you work or, you know, or do you feel like it, it needs to be those separate I do. I think about a lot of side projects and they tend to be much more likely to not turn into anything while I'm working because mm -hmm. then I'm just thinking about them and I'm like excited to get to spend time on it. And then I get home and I'm like, I don't want to work. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I have a hard time working too much. Like, um, I guess I just like to have kind of one big thing going at a time. And so when I'm working, I usually just spend most of my time on that. And if I feel like motivated to keep working on it or keep working on something related whether it's a design thing or a programming thing i'll usually just keep doing the work thing when i come home if i'm like excited to keep going yeah i've had a couple of things come up like i, I made a little app um for designers it's like a color uh picker app cupcake uh, yeah cupcake so i made that while i was working a full-time job and but yeah i mean that was a sort of rare example of like i thought it would be a cool idea i built it and i shipped it while I was working a full-time job, but usually I just have to kind of one big thing at a time. Mm -hmm. Besides the um, building the letterpress, what are some of the other things that you liked to do that you say that you, you like to connect design with everything in your life? What, what are some other things that are fun or interesting that you like to connect design to? Photography has been a big passion for a long time. I haven't taken photos for a few years really I mean I've taken photos but not like in the way that I used to go out specifically to just take pictures um, I kind of tend to do it in spurts and the last time I was I got a lot out of it was I set up a, a little photo blog and I sort of tried to push myself to you know at least publish to it every few days it, I got a lot of creative uh, I got a lot out of that, that project and um, 
I don't know, there can be a little bit of a trap there for me, which is that, like, if I decide I want to make a website, then I feel like I have to build and design the entire website myself, and it's sort of hard to, like, convince myself to use a tool when I, like, know how to code it, and then mm-hmm. it becomes its whole other project in and of itself, so I'm probably better <laughs> off, like, just using, you know, like, use Instagram or Tumblr or something, and decide that that's another constraint is that i don't get to code it because <laughs> otherwise that'll like take over and i'll have to spend three months doing that first and you know i would love to try some more printing projects uh the letterpress thing has been kind of stewing around in my brain for a couple years and um i'm kind of glad that i had an opportunity to like you know have a good project to build it around uh, it's satisfying to have like built it by hand um but i think even our plates online, like photopolymer plates, so you can design, you know, really detailed plates on your computer and then have a really nice plate made out of it that um, you can use it again and again, which is really cool. I um, was going through your Twitter feed and I noticed that you had made a comment on uh, December 1st about the misuse of semicolon. <laughs> and then I think you had posted a video. Oh uh, yeah, I, I never followed up on the video. Oh, <laughs> so this is uh, the what's it called? Lonely Island. The the yeah. guys who do the digital shorts and other songs and stuff for SNL, and uh, they just have this ridiculous song about semicolons. Semicolons are sort of like this. Uh, well, I had a boss once who I worked for who called programming going into the semicolon mines. And <laughs> because a lot of programming languages have a lot of semicolons in them, and there's actually uh, like big debates over like the sort of semicolon languages versus ones that don't have it, which usually means you can just not type a character there. Like you just, you know, have code on four lines means you're saying four things instead of having to separate them with like semicolon at the end of every line. So it, it seemed like uh, I could sort of spin that into this is meta because it's like I'm thinking about programming language design and probably. A language that doesn't have semicolons and then yeah. you know the video is about improper use of the video by the way is just like uh they took the text the lyrics and uh kind of did like a video graphic thing right. of it is kind of a kinetic typography yeah exactly yeah yeah i um usually the people that we have interviewed to begin with we knew something about and Paige was the first person that we had no idea we did a lot of you know like hunting around the internet and so when she gave us your name, first thing we did was look around. And I, there was very little that I could find about you. And she even said, you'll find that there's very little about him on the <laughs> Internet. I think I'm just becoming more and more um, like crotchety or particular about things uh, as I get older. And so um, now I'm at this point where like if it's not perfect, uh, I don't want it online. <laughs> and so what happened was these old sites... Uh, that's kind of silly because I, I'm a strong believer in like the web should have, shouldn't have so many dead links. And I wish these things would like stay archived for longer. And I destroy my own archives, which is sort of hypocritical, but um, I don't know. I, I don't know what's wrong with me where I just, am like, well, it's not perfect anymore. So I'm just going to rip it down. And my homepage now is like, it's like, there's no style sheet because I was like, well, if it's not going to be nice and perfect, I'm just going to not have a style sheet at all. And so it's like this hideous, like 19, you know, nineties looking like white background, black text. Um, so yeah, I feel like that's brewing. Like I'm going to have to come back to redoing the website at some mm-hmm. point and maybe I'll finally, you know, move beyond my like <laughs> peculiarities there and just like use a blogging tool that already exists. 
um, or I will finally sit down and, and design a new like portfolio website for myself. Um, I used to have a portfolio online too. That was part of the thing that broke. So I used to have like examples of work and all these photographs and like website designs I had done. And yeah, it's all it's all gone. <laughs> of perfection is all the way down to your Twitter profile page where it's just black pictures. Oh yeah, so the black actually that was like a solidarity thing with the latest like changing your Twitter icon to all black in support of the Ferguson protests and other ones happening around the country. I have a story about being very particular about Twitter uh, bios which is that another designer I used to work with at Simply Measured uh, he and I spent like hours tweaking the, the photograph so that um, when it went through, um, I can't remember if it's Facebook or Twitter, but one of them has like a algorithm they run on your photograph that like downsamples it and kind of makes it not look exactly the way you want. And we like experimented with like, and we learned that I think if there's certain metadata on the photograph, like that says it was taken with a camera or just, I forget what it was. There was some piece of metadata that had to be there. And if it was there, then they would respect your, I forget what they were doing. I think they were just like, compressing the heck out of it and just mm -hmm. making it look crappy so we found a way around that <laughs> and it was like just to make the logo look really awesome on facebook we're gonna like spend hours like experimenting with these different uh, ways of uploading photographs and like this one from the iphone looks good why is that you know uh, but no mine's black just because of that so you have your name as let name equal daniel what, what is that uh oh yeah i just thought you got on the bandwagon of people on twitter like changing their names from now and again just to like make a little joke um and that's uh just came out of the programming language research which uh, one way of defining like giving a name for something is to say let like so-called let binding okay. it's like a variable where you say like you know x okay. equals five is name equals daniel and the fact that you have at half full heart yeah, so that was my um, sort of personal brand, if you want to call it that. <laughs> brand. Um, <laughs> I made a logo, which I guess is no longer online anywhere, and it used to be my Twitter icon for a long time. It's just like a, a heart symbol with uh, one half filled in. It's a play on the idea of, like, is the glass half full or half empty? I can't remember now what... I know I came up with this a long time ago. I was younger. It was sort of like... I'm sure it was some very poetic thing, but... The idea is just like um, sort of the balance between like pessimism and optimism. Um, um, just sort of saying like at your center, you're, you know, like have the balance between. Mm -hmm. I actually consider myself to be an optimist. Um, so I guess that's why it's half full. Yeah. It's very interesting because that this was really all we had to work from. Yeah. And so there was a lot of different things. And like, this is going to be the fun part. Yeah. When I listened to uh, the previous shows, it sounded like you had done online research to find and figure out about people and i was kind of disappointed because i was like oh well i I'll, all this stuff is not online anymore so they're not gonna see it and it's like all the design stuff's gone now it's just like dumb twitter jokes yeah and i don't know what else well my favorite was the the tufty one where you had you had quoted tufty reading tufty the only worse design than a pie chart is several of them end quote while the woman next to me put six in on one page. <laughs> yeah. I think I was on a plane, actually. 
I love that data visualization stuff. And here's Tufti saying, like, here's all the reasons why pie charts are bad. And I'm like, okay, I've heard this. Like, all the analysts were telling me this. Now I know why. And then I look over and this woman is, like, making this hideous PowerPoint presentation that's just covered in pie charts, like a, a grid of pie charts. Did I attach a photograph to that? Of the, I probably didn't no. sneak one. Yeah, mm -hmm. that would have been too bold of me. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> And the class M planet, are you a Star Trek fan? Uh, yeah, I just did a rewatch of The Next Generation to go through. So what is your favorite episode that you can still either reference or that you find to be worthwhile to watch again and again? The one that always stood out in my mind as like such an interesting episode was, uh, I think it's called Cause and Effect. Um, I don't remember which season it's from, but the Enterprise gets into this time loop where at the beginning of the show, the ship is destroyed, and then it goes to commercial break, and then you come back, and it's like nothing happened. Over the course of the episode, the ship is destroyed again and again and again, and each time they learn more about their predicament, and they manage to send a like sent information forward into the next loop so that they can prevent the inevitable destruction uh, on the last time out of the loop. And at the end of the episode, they, they like, they've been in this loop for months or something or weeks. I can't remember what it is, but I always thought that was just kind of neat. I like it when TV shows play with the setting in a way mm -hmm. where they're like, you never thought we would destroy the ship, but we just did. It's crazy. You know? And then you're like, what? And then there's like some way out of it, you know? Yeah. Um, Nerd fest. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting, My, uh, I'm just going to go off on this tangent now for a while, so lean back a little there, Chad. Um, my favorite one is actually when he gets connected to this probe from another uh, village or whatever, and he lives this entire life in a matter of minutes. And at the end, you see him as a really old man watching the probe take off in space, and then he realized, wait a second, what's going on? This is the same probe from years ago and so he they tell him this is a probe of uh our culture our civilization that died out and we wanted whoever to have it to have it in them and at the end the probe is destroyed but the only thing left is the um the flute yeah yeah the flute that um he taught himself to play and at the end it's him quiet just by himself in his in his suite playing the flute that he played to his wife. And it was just this like little tear drip around the eye. That's actually what I love about sci-fi shows that can be like that, which is that it's it's really about like people and mm -hmm. about, you know, it's a really like moving story. Um, I love Battlestar Galactica for that reason, because I felt like it was a really great, like it's a drama. It happens to be set in a space setting, but mm -hmm. it's really like about these really interesting characters. They do a pretty good job most of the time. It's interesting that um, you have interest in sci-fi, and, and you picked up the, the commentary. I mean, that was originally Gene Roddenberry's idea, is that we've solved our current social issues, but the, the, the remnant of it still remains in some fashion um, out there in space. But also using sci-fi as, as a means or any genre for instance as a means of having a creative constraint uh, to it do you feel that perhaps growing up with these types of things like star trek and, or any other sci-fi that you know doctor who or uh, those other ones um, that there is a constraint of telling that story within the realm of the realism that they've created yeah 
I think there is something really interesting to that, especially Doctor Who may be an exception to this, which I still really love, but I think um, a lot of science fiction shows tend to just use the fact that they can kind of play with their universe to solve their story problems. And I don't usually like that. Like, I would prefer that they choose how their universe works. And even if it's not something you can explain or not something that's realistic, you just stick with it and then sort of tell everything on that basis. I think I don't like it when things are unrealistic, which is silly when, you know, think about all of science fiction is super unrealistic in a lot of ways. But but at least if you set a certain set of ground rules and say, like, okay, in this universe, we know how to travel through wormholes or whatever it is, then that's just accepted and you move on from there. So I think that's a really interesting form of constraint, right? It's saying, like, are you going to continue to, like, sort of mess with the boundaries of it? Or are you going to, like, really stick to what you set out to um, how you define your universe and then stay within those like how how much do you color outside of the lines of the universe you created uh having just recently rewatched all of next generation i feel like the big thing they always fell back on was run a diagnostic you know it's like oh something's wrong with the ship run a level three diagnostic and i assume that that's like you know asking the computer to try to figure out its own problem and then usually comes back with there's no problem um which is odd because i mean i guess that's they're trying to say like the technological advancement in the future is that instead of having to like have humans debug computers the computer debugs itself but it still took like hours to run these diagnostics you know which i think is kind of not so forward looking like um i think a lot of the better advances in user interfaces have been around having immediate feedback for things I think it's interesting that like this forward-looking future world was like oh well the computer can fix itself but it takes a few hours for it to do that you know and it's like why doesn't it just immediately know what the problem is if it's broken um that would be like my future vision for better interfaces but do you think that that was because at the time in the 80s and 90s what we had was in order to find a problem we ran norton antivirus you know we we had a program yeah. that we hit the buttons and we quote ran our level three diagnostic um i wonder if it was really like a norton level three you know whatever and just added to it um that's partly i think you had just mentioned something that that is not forward thinking of using the way that we see things to the way that we will in the future yeah i hadn't thought of the like whole antivirus uh craze there which that's probably true um and so in that sense, it would be even less forward-looking to be like, oh, it works just like our most cutting-edge technology today. It's just on a bigger scale. Um, yeah, I think it's super hard to predict what things will actually look like. I'm kind of fascinated by, like, uh, fake user interfaces that show up in movies. You see this a lot in sci-fi. I just read this really interesting blog post about um, all of the um, iconography and interfaces in the Alien films. Um, there's a great... Uh, blog posts that takes apart kind of all of the, how that looks and works and they even like you know very nerdy like zooming in on some of the consoles and like uh, icons that were printed on the inside of the ship to like see what they actually look like and uh, someone had designed a keyboard for like the auto distract system and and it's all filled with like just completely made up words because they like didn't have enough time to come up with like a whole like why is it called this you know so they just threw something together and anyway I, I think it's interesting to see like how people come up with imaginings of how interfaces could work um, I think most of the time they are not based in reality like they're not something that would be easy to use or um, would work well for people 
Um, and there's so many classic examples of this, like the minority report interfaces that were so flashy and interesting at the time where you're waving your hands around all the time. Your, your arms would get so tired if you had to use an interface like that, um, which is kind of interesting happening now because there's a lot more laptops with touch screens now. And I have not used one myself, but I've talked to people who have used them and said that it's actually, uh, they really like it. And I think it's because it's in addition to the usual input where, you know, you're not actually doing all your work pointing at the screen with your hand having, you know, raised up. You're just doing it occasionally when you want to point something out or scroll something. And, um, it's more intuitive sometimes to scroll using your fingers, so people just do that. Um, so that might work as an alternative, but as the primary input device, it probably doesn't make sense. And you know, most movies and TV shows don't really think that through, and probably don't hire like user experience designers to help them build their sets. Um, so taking that idea, forward thinking from from your perspective, Daniel, um, what is the future of interfaces? Uh, I really don't think I can predict. I have an idea of some things that I think might be better than what we have. Um, predict how things would go instead of just like my pet idea I think prediction would probably be more about like virtual reality and like wearables because even though I think I hate the idea of Google Glass and I think people wearing them are kind of silly and you know I think a lot of that stuff is like not far enough along yet to be really useful I do think like we're gonna probably have big advances in that area it just seems like there's a lot of untapped potential and love you know like virtual worlds we like to like escape our reality so that seems more likely to become more mainstream to me just because there's like a deep drive within us to like visit other places even if that's just like disappearing for a little while like and it's so much more compatible with like entertainment and entertainment is taking over everything you know and it seems like there's lots of opportunities to advertise and advertising is taking over everything so i you know that's more of a prediction than a wish I don't know I guess I struggle with this idea because I, I on the one hand don't want to seem like too old-fashioned but I do think there's something to a lot of the non-computer interfaces that we've already developed things like books and uh, writing with pen and paper that are superior so superior to the existing tech like you know high-tech technology and um, I kind of wonder if there's ways to unify that and it's also kind of weird for me to say that because I've never been interested in like you can buy those notebooks that have like a you know a pen that knows what it's writing and you know like it's digitally saving everything you're writing while you're writing in your notebook I have no interest in that um, which maybe is hypocritical because it seems like to me there's gonna I imagine that there will be really cool technologies that offer really really useful interfaces that are about sort of taking what we have that's digital and malleable and turning it into something that's more like tactile and easy to use that's physical and it seems like that stuff is heading in that direction but it's just not something that I so I guess I'm curious about what future interfaces there will be that uh, it just seems like so many digital things have all these weird limitations inherent in the technology that that you know the reason we have touch screens with no tactile feedback is not because we don't want the tactile feedback it's because we don't know how to build that yet and I think there are a lot of areas that are like that right where it's like it only works this way because we we the more obvious solution would we would just build it, but it isn't obvious because the technology isn't there yet. So, so uh, Daniel, we have two questions for you. The last two, the very uh, essence of what makes uh, podcast number six your podcast number five or episode five. Who is there out there 
that you know that we should interview? Well, I'm going to be kind of selfish in my answer, which is that um, Matt Knorr, who I used to work with at Simply Measured, um, is a really great designer early in his career, and I would love to hear more about him. Um, yeah, I would just be, I think he'd be a really interesting person to interview. I think he has this great sense for, I doubt he would describe it this way, but I don't know, he has like a great feel for just like, he was doing a lot of print media and it was, um, that's so hard for me to articulate because it's just like, you know, when a designer gets something right and you're like, oh yeah, like the, the way that makes me feel when I look at it, that's the correct way I should be feeling. And uh, anyway, I think he has a good grasp on that. So. And so, what question would you like to ask him? What should we? Yeah, and again, to be selfish, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'd be curious to hear from him. Like, what what are his principles that he holds really dear? Like, what design principles really drive him? Um, the reason being that uh, the workplace wasn't really an environment where we got to spend a lot of time talking about theory or, you know, sort of where we we're um, coming from. It was a lot of very like practical stuff, like have to get this done this thing isn't right this needs to get fixed like we were dealing with a lot of like how to organize our um we had a lot of people working on design across the company and we were like oh like we're all contributing to the brand but we're not communicating enough and we don't have like a central repository for you know listing all of our colors or even anything you know um and so that that's like very tactical like how are we going to get this done and, um so i'd be curious to hear that okay i like that one yeah. 